Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 235. Today is the 28th of May, 2017, and this interview is with Giles English, who's co-founder of the leading luxury British watchmaker, Bromont, with a mission to bring back luxury watchmaking to Britain, and a strong desire to follow his passion. Giles and his brother Nick founded Bromont in 2002. In this chat, Giles shares with us his strategic approach, the way he has built and differentiated his Bromont brand, as well as the marvellous stories that surround the company and each watch, a true lesson in brand building. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Giles English, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So, Giles, I heard um, really about your story for the first time at a wonderful Like Minds event in in the heart of London. And, uh, of course, the, having the last name English uh, certainly could be an indication of what we're about to speak about. But we're going to be speaking about Bremont, uh, which is this divine luxury watch company that you founded. And unlike most luxury watch companies that usually sort of like luxury watch companies that start with, you know, since 1843. You guys are since 2002. So if you could, tell us who you are, what you, what you do, and what's your mindset, Giles, this fine morning? Yes. Um, uh, well, hello. We, um, we're one of the few British watch companies. There aren't many around. And it, it really started out of a, a passion project. My father was this amazing engineer, and he loved his watches and clocks and grew up around him and he died in a plane crash in 1995 and at the time we were, we were all pilots but um, I trained as an engineer and, and my brother was with the plane crash and he, he survived and, and really that triggered for us was this desire to go and um, uh, uh, carry on this sort of family love of, of building watches and um, really build on this wonderful history of British watch making that not many people know about. So, uh, yeah, that's really where it all started. And uh, it it's, feels like not that long since 2002, but it's been a, a lot of hard work since then. How about your mindset? How do you describe your mindset, Giles? My mindset? Um, my mindset is, is rather positive, actually. I think when you're running a, a business and you're um, – uh, doing quite a lot of stuff around the world, you don't really have a chance to ever sit back and, and relax. So I think you have to get up and uh, try and hit the world each morning, which um, uh, saps your energy, but it's rather exciting. So when I listen to you, Giles, uh, apart from the the continuing the tradition, I, I should say, or at least uh, in the wake of your, uh, your father, engineering adventurer, pilot, you also have this desire to reignite English watchmaking. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that. For, for the most people who are listening probably don't know much about the history of English watchmaking and why why your mission is so particularly interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating. Everyone thinks Swiss made for high-end mechanical watches. Um, but the turn of the century, we're making half the world's watches in the UK. Um, 
we, you know, the world sets its time by Greenwich Mean Time, not Geneva Mean Time. Um, there were so many great inventions that came from ever since uh, sort of 1760 when Harrison invented the marine chronometer. Um, we were leading the world. Uh, we were very slow to industrialize. Two world wars knocked all our skill set out. Um, we were too busy making guns, planes, and uh, supporting the war effort. Um, Switzerland as a neutral country really took over the mantle, um, and the British and German watch industries um, slowly died out. And um, so we were very aware of this wonderful history um, growing up um, in our works with our father, and, and there are over 750 Swiss watch companies. Um, we felt that if we could build a beautiful product in the UK, um, although... Uh, we were only going to have a very, very small percentage of that market. Uh, we still felt it was a big market. And uh, slightly madly, we, we, we went on this long journey. So you've gone up against the, the, the monumental Swiss competitor, but you're also presumably feeling like you're going up against iPhones and Apple Watches. Well, um, that's a fascinating one. Obviously, when we started, there wasn't any such things as the smartwatch. Um and, you know, from nowhere, Apple is something that, you know, in the top few largest watch manufacturers now, um, which is quite amazing. I, I think, you know, the wonderful thing about a mechanical watch is you buy one of our watches, uh, it's all cogs and gears. There's 86,400 seconds in a day, and these cogs and gears will, will be within some three or four seconds accuracy. Um, and that watch will work in 200 years' time. Yes, you'll have to service it, um, but there'll be watchmakers still be able to fix that in 200 years' time. So there's very few things you can buy nowadays that last forever. You know, you're going to buy a new car now in three years' time, it's it's worthless. And and that's the beauty of what we buy. Yes, you can tell your time on your phone or your computer or anything else, um, but having a luxury watch on your wrist is, is really a good long-term investment, but something which is beautiful and, um, uh, and and very practical as well. So do you think, Charles, you are in this, uh, and I don't mean to be facetious, tapping into an old folks' thought, or is there some deeper context um, that even amongst the younger, the idea of the ephemeral nature of our world, the sort of, you know, the quick Snapchats and, and all that, are, are we actually, are you possibly looking to return us to some good old values? Well, I, I think there is, a, there is a strong element of that. I mean, uh, but I think it's, so it's, it, it's the same with jewellery. Why do young people wear jewellery, you know, precious thing, when you can get some manufactured diamond instead far cheaper? It's, it's that worth. It's, it's, we're selling luxury. Um, but I also think you, um, if, if something like smartwatches gets people to wear watches then they're used to wearing something on the wrist and then there is a progression to something like your luxury watch so so it can be beneficial to the market i think where the luxury watch market um the, the watch market has been really hit by the smart watch is in the the cheaper fashion segment which um kids are going from their fashion watches and, and buying a smart watch instead um, but is, is it harking back to old age history or is it a, a beautifully uh, made mechanical device that you can wear every day? Um, 
and you really appreciate. So it's, it's I think, probably um, a bit of both. Well, one thing is for sure. Um, so if you, I'm, I'm an Apple fan uh, and, and I like their watch. And the idea that you can personalize it is sort of the, the I would say, the, the defining element of the Apple Watch for me. Whereas with your watches, you guys are all about the story behind the watch. And, and what I'd like if you could just share with us, A, the, the, the initialization and the use of the word Brumont, which certainly isn't very British. Um, no. And I think, but, but uh, and then I want to get into this, this notion of the, how you construct your watches, because I, I find it absolutely delicious. So start, tell us about the Brumont beginning. Yes, I, when we started out, uh, Nick and I, um, we went over to Switzerland for, for a number of years. Um, it was at least it was over five years before we sold our first watch. Um, and what most brands do in the watch space, um, out of all of those watch brands around, yeah, very few were companies that have been trading since 1722 or whenever it was. Right. They're resurrected brands, um, and they were, you know, took their branding and, and redid it. Nick and I felt if we did that, if I, I could have got Harrison or Mudge or Tompion, one of the great British watchmakers, and we could have relaunched them and said we've been trading since you know, all those years. But we felt, one, you'd be living a bit alive, but also how as a brand could we work with a Boeing or a Jaguar or a Martin Baker? And to that actually make sense for a, for a brand known for making historical marine chronometers in 1760. So that's our, that was our mindset there. We then, um, we couldn't use our surname. Our, you know, my surname's English. You would never get the trademark from English on a watch. Um, so really the name came from experience. About three years after Dad died, Nick and I were flying in an old biplane through France. And um, we got caught in some terrible weather. And in, in the UK, um, when that happens, you put it down a field and you give the farmer a bottle of whiskey and say sorry. But in France, if you land on an unlicensed airfield, they can impound your aircraft, make you take your wings off. It's, it's a complete disaster. French, and, a little bit of French uh, bureaucracy. Yeah, well, exactly. There's no shortage of that. Um, so we we got stuck in this terrible weather, um, running out of fuel. We had to put it down in a French farmer's pea field. Um, and we landed thinking this was going to be a disaster. And this lovely old man came out and helped us out. And we stayed with him a couple of days. And he was in his 80s and was restoring his old tractors. And he was just a real character. And, and Nick and I thought, if, if our father had reached his 80s, he would have been this man. And and we left. And, and this chap was called um, Antoine Bremont. And we thought, Bremont, that's, that's a nice sounding name. And we get the trademark and look, look good on a watch. Let, let's use that. And, and that's literally just where it came from. And he just thought we we're crazy Englishmen. And uh, off we went. So, um, yeah, no, that, that, that's the story behind the name. Not particularly British sounding. No. I, I agree. But it, it does have its authenticity. Um, and, and so, uh, first of all, I, I understood that uh, Bremont was actually wearing his father's watch. Um, well, he was, he liked his, his clocks and his, uh, um, his watches and he was an old pilot himself. So he was just a character that we connected Unbelievable, Yeah. Unbelievably similar in some ways. And then did he ever get to know, uh, I assume he's passed away since. So did he get to know that you named the company after him? 
Yeah, so we we told him what we're we're going to do. This was very early days, and he he just thought we're crazy Englishmen, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sadly he he died not that long afterwards. So we, we never re- and we never got to know him very well. But right. it's a, it was a, a, a an amusing encounter. Yeah, but it's, it's glorious. And so the other thing, Josh, I mean, you're you're in this world competing with so many other inst- established, installed, you know, big name brands and big big budgets. You have this particular approach with each of your watches, and so give us some. Maybe what's your favorite watch to talk about? Yeah, I, I think you, you know. Ultimately, branding aside, uh, if you can make a, you know, we when we set out, you have to make a product that when the most hardcore watch journalists came across you, you pick up your watch and say, no, "I've never heard the brand before. What's this about British watchmaking?" Um, but actually. This is a really nice watch for the price point. And we knew if we got that tick in the box, it would help. Um, and so we have our core collection. Our whole remit was about, you know, our aviation background and about 20% of our business just making it for military now. But it was about a classic style watch you could wear in the boardroom up or up Mount Everest. Um, and so we had special hardening treatments, all that sort of stuff. It's, it, you know, technically, it's, it's just wonderful. But every few years, we come up with interesting limited editions. And, and really, we slightly stumbled on this, that um, this watch we created back in about um, 2007, um, called EP120. And, and we're with an old family friend of my father's who owns the largest collection of historical aircraft in, in, in Europe. And he's restoring this beautiful old Spitfire, which has you know, huge history. Um, They'd taken an aluminium panel off the wing, and we're with him, and he said, he's holding this panel, and said, do you realize this is flying by a 19-year-old kid over um, Dresden in 1942? What a piece of history. And Nick and I looked in the Spitfire and had this beautiful old British Smith's clock in it. And he thought, actually, why don't we build, build a watch based on that beautiful clock, but use that metal of that Spitfire in the back of the watch, and it's real commemoration to the Spitfire, to the pilots, everything else. And we did, and this this, this watch just, just sold instantly. And if you can buy one of those today, they sell for about four or five times the original value. Um, and it really triggered a, a, this sort of limited edition thing we come up with every few years. Um, uh, so the last watch we did, um, uh, well, recently was one called the Wright Flyer that we did with parts of the Right fly Wilbur and Orville's um, aircraft built into the back of the watch using Orville's pocket watch, raising a lot of money for charity to restore Wilbur and Orville's family home in Dayton, Ohio. Um, so these, mechanically, they're beautiful, but also they have these wonderful stories, history and, and charitable elements, and it's, it's become a, a bit of a hallmark of, of the brand. Um, there's something just on a personal level, Nick and I do all the design and, and it's something we get very, very integrated within and uh, it's something to be part of. So that's, yeah, keep an eye out for interesting things we come out with there. It's, it's always quite fun. I must, I must, I can't, Im- I mean, I must imagine there's a lot of enjoyment of, of the research, the, the, the detail orientation, and then you're crafting it around your own passions, which, you know, which includes flying. And that's yeah, the you know, lovely thing of having your own business, and you know when you do all the design, is you are basing it on what you personally like. And I, I think where I see where brands go wrong is that they design by committee, they market by committee, 
Mm. So you just come bland and you're trying to appeal to everyone. Yeah. I don't think in life you can make everyone like you and, and, and you just learn to live like that. But hopefully there's enough people who, who like what you like. Um, and I think that, that, that sort of drives us. What's the hardest part of your job, Giles? The hardest part is um, the diversity of what we do. I mean, ultimately, we are an engineering company. Manufacturing, um, you know, I have 80, 90 people in, in Henyon Thames building watches. All of those are trained up. Um, we put apprenticeship schemes in place. You're trying to train watchmakers, polishers, uh, machinists, uh, designers, um, so ultimately, we're, we're, we're an engineering company making something very complicated. But you also have to be very good at marketing. People don't buy a watch for our price point unless they've heard the brand, they've read about it, they've seen it on um, social media and the magazines, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to be very good at marketing, and you have to do it globally. So you, know, you, you can't be a... Uh, a watch brand and just be in one country because so much of the watch buyers around the world are, are global travellers and they expect to see you everywhere. Luxury watches, anyway. Luxury watches, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and and we own our own shops, so you have to be good at retail as well. So, so ultimately, it's just a very complicated business. So when you wake up in the morning each day, is it about you know, the spec of the new CNC machine you want to buy to machine watch components, or is it... Um, a press interview so it's 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 a complicated business mm. i want to get into that in a moment but i did have one last question about the product per se which is that as you're trying to establish a point of difference you have your brand your stories the, the link with you your, your family and so on um but you also offer a three-year warranty and so my question is why a three-year warranty um most Brands don't do as long, but why stop at three? You seem to, I mean, it's a, sort of a, at a certain level, it's almost like you are building the definitive adventurer's watch. As you, I saw on a tweet yesterday or something that someone said, Well, I'm going to do a really rough ride on my bicycle, uh, my motorcycle. Uh, should I take it off? Because otherwise it's going to jiggle it around too much. And you said, or someone said, Hell no, that's what it's made for. <laughs> um, and I thought yeah. that was a brilliant you response. Might to regret that one. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, I, I think the um, we mechanical watches are, are inherently quite delicate. There's no doubt about that. It's cogs and gears. You knock it around, and and, and you still have to um, protect it. But we wanted a mechanical watch, which wasn't just going to be used with your suit and your yeah. board meeting, but actually to be properly used and enjoyed. And that's where that that the DNA came from. And um, three-year warranty um and and why not longer is because watch needs to be serviced um and uh so so that's sort of beyond there really you should consider servicing a watch you know four or right. five years because you've got hundreds of moving components that need to be oiled and that oil has to be like driving your car you need to get and change oil um the same happens with with a watch um, we really do stand by our products, um, and, and that's that's key to people's reassurance and why, when they're buying one of our watches. But also, we're, we're not making that many um, compared with the big boys, yeah. so you're getting something very exclusive as well. And when you uh, reservice a watch, because I have my own luxury watch, but when you reservice it, um, will you be re-extend the guarantee? Uh, yes, exactly. So you, you get a you get an extended guarantee after that service. 
That's brilliant. All right, so I want to talk about your marketing and the selection and how you go about selling it, you know, getting out there. As you say, you're up against the big boys, big budgets, uh, and you've got to be global. So what would be uh, the areas in marketing where you say there's the biggest bang for your for your quid as opposed to a buck? Uh, yeah, for your buck or quid. Um, ultimately, what built Bremer, this was, you know, we were days before social media, um, was PR, um, getting people to write about you, having stories like your EP 120 watch, um, uh, the story of what you're doing as a brand, and, and making those journalists truly believe in what you're trying to do. Um, so that, without doubt, has been the most powerful and conventional press doing that. Then I think also, you know, as a young brand, we've never had the advertising to go and you know, put it in um, the magazines and uh, put it, you know, ads everywhere. But we always had a lot of content. So the stuff Nick and I do, the people we meet, these amazing sort of ambassadors who are doing interesting stuff. And so we've always had a lot of content as a brand to talk about. So when social media started taking off um, and blogs were becoming more interactive, actually, as a brand, we weren't just saying, this is a watch, this is a watch. We were going to more details how you make the watch this is the people wearing the watches doing interesting stuff um these are the partners we work with so um uh, and it was all none of it was marketing made up stuff this was sort of just evolution as a brand so I, I think that's really helped us grow and i and and with modern brands you can't be a faceless brand anymore um whereas the big boys could easily be be that you have to be far more personal and and i think in in the modern day we fitted into that role um and it's it's very genuine to how we want to live our brand something so i think that's that's helped you know, something you and i shared when when we met was this notion that actually i mean as much as the product itself is glorious and, and a fine piece of work it's more the stories around the object that, and history of the object and the people who are wearing it, which are the stories to tell. Yeah, I, I think, but, I, but the general public see through if it's a story. Yeah, if you make it up, they, they, you know, I've learned this in, in marketing over years, is that these little nuances, these subtle points the general public pick it up far quicker than you ever think they would. So, you know, to say you're an aviation watch and just have, you know, um, pretty models standing in front of glam planes yeah, yeah. is just not going to work these Completely. days. Um, we can say that we're an aviation watch because, you know, Nick and I were both in the RF. My father was. We grew up. We both fly. 20, 25% of our business is just making for the military um, so if you're a U-2 spy plane pilot or um, F-18 pilot flying for carrier, you're wearing our watches. So it's so none of that is made up. It's just what we are. And I think brands, you, you have to, in this modern world, really preach what you believe and, and, and that to be part of you because everyone sees through it if you don't. Well, I, I completely agree. And I didn't mean to say stories as in fibs. I mean, yeah, no, 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 so I wasn't implying you were. No, 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 of course. But, it, <laughs> but as, you know, these big boys, what they end up doing is sort of trying to fabricate those stories. And and they, they're they not as willing to say, I mean, unless it's a celebrity, in which case they have to probably pay them. 
but the 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 feeling of of more rugged stories around your adventures and and the people who are wearing and there's there's definitely a feeling of of legitimacy and authenticity in the stories that you wind around each of your watches um yeah and i and i think with you know brands do well in this this modern world it, it has to be authentic i, I totally agree with you there so the other thing which really struck me was this notion of distribution and, and the desire to have your own stores. So if you, you know, in, in one regard, I think of Apple, who have uh, had an obsession with controlling the entire chain. Uh, of course, that they don't make the components in the beginning, but they are very much involved and in, want to have total control along the, the channel uh, for, for including their own stores. Tell us a little bit about your distribution strategy and to what extent you really do want and own your own stores. I think um, owning your own stores is very expensive and can be quite a high-risk way to go. Um, so our, our strategy is not to only go through our own um, uh, distribution, our own stores around the world. But our strategy has been very much to own our own distribution. So that is, when I go into America, we don't go through a distributor, which is the standard way. You'd normally go through a distributor. You He guarantees he'll buy X number of watches per year off you, um, and he does all the marketing, do, do everything else. We thought that was one removed from what we're trying to do, and um, we need to be more personal um, with those retailers and manage that process ourselves. So it's always going to be a slower growth, but it meant we we're making full margin and we were controlling our message in America, Asia, wherever else we go. And if a market's going badly, um, you don't have a distributor out there who's sitting on a thousand watches saying, buy them back or I'm going to dump them cheap on the internet, um, which is what distributors can do. Um, so we, we, that was very important for us. And then we, we launched a store in the UK and we realized that actually it helped your whole wholesale distribution because people can come in, feel the brand, and they may go and buy it from their local retailer. So it's not just about sales. It's very much a marketing um, engine to the world of Bremont. And um, that became uh, a very strong thing for us. So we, we have four stores um, around the world. We... We'll probably open another couple, but it's it's not a massive thing for us because it's very expensive to do. Um, but it's very powerful marketing, and I think um, uh, yeah, if people can read about it, and if they go into Selfridges, they see see us in there in a little counter, but it, they don't they can't really buy into the whole brand. Whereas so, they go into our store, they they very quickly understand what we're all about. In, in amongst the challenges that I, I see in, in a number of luxury brands is this notion of the global customer. So they go into a store in Tokyo, they might, let's say, and they see your your beautiful watch in a Takashima department store or, you know, whatever retailer you decided. They buy that and then they uh, they travel to Rio and or, or London, you know, and they, oh, oh, it doesn't work, something's broken. And they go to the local store where they see Bremont being sold and they say, listen, I need to fix this. Uh, but it's a different retailer. It's not obviously Takashimaya or whomever you know you might have had. How do you manage that process? Well, that process should be seamless if that retailer is a good retailer, um, and um, uh, that sh 
but if it's a bad retailer and you haven't trade them well enough or um, then then that customer won't feel the love. The yeah. trick is picking the right retailer. So as a customer, you can go into one of our stores or one of our, our jewelers and they'll give you the same level of love and say, don't worry, sir, we'll get that sorted. We'll send it straight back to Bramall, call us up, blah, blah, blah. But also I think um, with the internet, with live chat on your website, you can help that process seem more seamless as well. And But it's incredibly important. And as you get bigger, it's hard to control. Um, and you need more and more training to be able to enable that um, a level of customer service. Well, the area that this where this becomes tricky is I, I've purchased a pre-owned Pullman. I bought it on eBay and I go into the store. So the, what I wanted to get into was the idea of the single customer view. And, and to what extent do you have a database that allows you to know the authentic owner of each of these watches? Yes, yeah, so we, we have a, a CRM database which should list um, most of the watches that have been purchased as long as they've been registered. We're, so we know who originally bought that watch, where it was sold from. Um, we encourage a second-hand market on it. So if people buy a second-hand, we don't see them as a prior. We... We, we love the fact that guy's bought a Bremont. He can come in. He, he'll very much enter as part of the Bremont family. Um, as, as long as that watch hasn't been stolen or, or there's anything dodgy about that. Um, but we can track that history. So if, you, if you're looking to buy a watch online, and you can call us up and we can confirm that watch hasn't been registered as a stolen watch or anything like that. And what's your general policy with regard to all these people who are obviously rather affluent and uh, these clients, uh, so you have the database. To what extent do you try to animate or communicate uh, or, you know, uh, take advantage of your link with them? Um, well, to me, the future of marketing is about databases. It's, it's about having that direct connection with your client, even though you may not have bought that watch off you. Um, it's about infusing him. It's about keeping him abreast of the brand. And, Anyone trying to grow a, a, a business who isn't doing that is um, uh, is making life very hard for himself. It's far cheaper to communicate to someone on your database um, than trying to get to him through adverts. Um, so I, it's, it's it's very important. Yeah, much less trying to acquire a new one. <laughs> yeah, and and but you got to have the system to get that client's data and then um, be able to provide him the right level of content without annoying him, without um, putting him off. So um, it, it's a fine line, but incredibly powerful if you get it right. Yeah, and the other element to that, for having run a company that had it was in 40 countries with distributors in the middle at times, the issue is sometimes getting to have the retailer to give you the information. I mean, at least, you know, they might say, well, you're going to be, you know, taking my customer or or, you know, co-opting my customer that I managed to get off the streets in Tokyo? Um, then if you won't give us the information, we can't deliver that level of customer service. Um, we can't give a warranty on that watch, so they shouldn't be a retailer of us. Which comes it's, back to... It's, it's it as simple as that. Yeah, it comes back to your choice of, if you go through distribution, they're not going to be as attentive to that kind of a detail. No, and, and if you go through distribution, you don't know which retailing retail they're putting your watches in. That a distributor's remit is just to sell and make money. Our remit is not is to sell, yes, but with the right customers, with the right long term game, 
short-term gains can be very different to long-term um, gains. And, and that's, you know, we're building a, a global luxury brand that we want to be here in 100 years' time. Mm. It's, it's a very different view. Beautiful segue to our, my last question, Giles. So I'm not going to talk about next steps next quarter, next year even, um, but the long-term vision. Because So let's say you're 100 years' time. The, the challenge is you, the founders, your energy, you and Nick, and you're driving it. You've got that passion for detail. You are the authentic aviators. Does the CEO in 100 years' time have to be uh, an aviator, nuts about watchmaking, uh, design himself or herself, and have a father who was a tinkerer and a pilot? Um, well, ideally, yes. But <laughs> no, um, no, I think yeah, I mean, if you look at other brands, you know, they, they carry on in the same form as Chanel or Louis Vuitton, and it's, it's, it's less focused on the founders, but the ethos is, is very similar. And I, and I think good you know, companies, their marketing teams, live and breathe that brand they they every message every statement they put out is on brand um and when that starts jumping all over the place that's when you have issues and that's the real challenge is is anyone who comes on in the business can they really be on brand and i think that's um incredibly important because as soon as you start getting a bit wishy-washy and, and jumping around with different messaging it gets it gets very challenging, and and that's also a challenge for us as you know Nick and I still very much heading it all up. Is you can make the wrong calls, you can um, over push partnerships that um, confuse your message. Um, so we we um, as founders and and uh, um, active people running the business still get it wrong as well. So um, that is. That is confusing, especially as you grow, um, your message can change. So it's, um, yeah, it's never easy, that's for sure. Mm. So does my, my father uh, was a pilot, and so I've flown many, many hours in, in what was the Cessna 310 Turbo. And uh, the question I have, the last uh, silly question was, between you and Nick, uh, when you're flying, who's the pilot and how do you choose? Uh, when we're flying, well, that's, that's quite, we used to take it in turns. Yeah. Um, uh, like, like, like the but, kid says, my turn in the front seat. Yeah, well, it is like that. And then we've had too many accidents, so um, we don't actually fly together anymore. So uh, we thought with us both uh, being knocked off, it's too uh, too terrible for families and business. So, um, no, we haven't really met. We don't fly anymore. Yeah, so they, that, that, that makes that answer quite <laughs> right. I'm sure the insurance company had some say in that one uh, as well. Yes, there is a little of that. Yeah. Brilliant, Charles. How can someone? What's the best way to get in touch with Bromont or uh, get in touch with you? What do you? What's the fair way to follow you? Yeah, um, follow us um, either me or my um, you know, the personal um, Giles English Instagram and Twitter and, and Bromont at Bromont. Um, and please go and see our stores. Put your name on our database. We we have monthly um, adventure club events where we get these amazing explorers who come and chat and. And, you know, connect with the brand and follow us and uh, we'd love to see you and um, uh, uh, no, love to get feedback as well. So thank you very much for having me on your podcast. My really appreciate pleasure, Giles. Lovely, lovely time. So uh, I hope to come down and see you in Henley sometime. I gather you just uh, signed up to become the official sponsor of the Henley Regatta. The first official partner they've ever had in 178 years, I think it is. Good. So, um, 
uh, us Hackett and Aston Martin. So we're very pleased with that. Making waves again, Charles. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. Where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.